ArchD1079 Life. James here with you. Amazing show coming up tonight. We have Archbishop Philip Wilson as our very special guest. Uh, we're going to be chatting about all sorts of things today. We're going to be talking about his remembrances of his family Christmas and what that meant to him. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the scriptures. We're going to be talking a little bit about Jesus um, and how his interpretation through the different disciples, the way they actually wrote uh, their individual gospels, why it was different. It's actually a very fascinating uh, bit of information. We touched on a bit of that when we had Sister Bernadette Kylie and Teresa Hudson on uh, about a month ago, but we're going to go into a bit more depth here about all the different gospels. We're also going to be talking about Jesus as a historical figure. The fact that he features not only in the gospels, but also in other historical texts, including the Quran. It's very, very interesting. We'll be talking about that in a moment too, as well as lots of other bits and pieces, as well as a special Christmas message, of course, for all of us from the Archbishop as well. But we are joined now by Archbishop Philip Wilson. Hello, Archbishop. How are you? Well, thank you, James. It's fantastic to have you here again, thank especially you. in this season, as as we're now uh, officially in Advent. We're plowing through the first week of Advent. A lot of people see the relationship between um, Advent and Christmas. Quite often, people think about it only as the calendars that the kids open up that have the chocolates inside for each day. But but the the relationship between Advent leading up to Christmas is is a very strong and important one. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, the development. Of Advent was late in the life of the church, but the reason for it was that people realised that Christmas was such an important feast that needed to be prepared for. And so uh, Advent uh, in our Latin church and in the other Catholic churches was a time of, um, of um, fasting and penance to prepare then for the great feast day. Our Advent now um, doesn't have as as much uh, about fasting and penance as it used to, although we're asked to uh, look at it as a time where we need to give some uh, consideration to conversion in our lives and do what's necessary. So the choices what, of what we do are our own. The, the season of Advent, the four weeks of Advent, is one of the most beautiful parts of our liturgical year. It's beautifully constructed with the readings of the Gospel each day at Mass, uh, talking about um, the, the coming of our Lord, the fulfilment of the promises made by God at the beginning that a Saviour would come. Just, just wonderful. And I think if people uh, look at the readings for each day at Mass, it's, it's a great way of uh, marking the experience of Advent. Mm. Of course, Advent calendars, you know, are a very important part of the way catechetically that uh, people did mark off Advent. They weren't about, though, um, uh, revealing uh, chocolates and lollies no. and stuff like that. They were actually little uh, reminders each day of all the major elements that there were in the preparation by God for the coming of Jesus. So you marked off each day. Each day there was something else to think about mm. in regard to salvation history. I remember when I was growing up and, and we had Advent calendars as a child and they weren't like they are now. It was like someone was reminding me, you know, you can now buy frozen Disney Advent calendars mm which completely remove themselves from right. what Advent really is. Yeah. But I remember they were just pictures. You would just open them up and there'd just be pictures inside, but they would correspond to whatever the reading was of the day That's leading right. up to Advent. It was really wonderful. They were very beautifully constructed. And of course, uh, some of the uh, Advent calendars were really huge works of art uh, put together by people who were very artistic and, and with lots of talent. How did they begin? Did they start off really as, as a, like that, like a piece of artwork? Oh, I think they began uh, uh, basically because uh, people invented the printing press. 
So while there would be many pictures of Advent themes beforehand, once people started printing, it gave them uh, new opportunities to, to do things to talk about our faith. So while um, there was a massive expansion of the transmission of faith through printed material, books and stuff like that, at the same time, it gave them the opportunity to print um, uh, images of, of um, elements of faith and so on and I'm not sure the exact details but somewhere in that people started coming up with the idea of an advent calendar so that you marked off day by day the progress through the weeks of advent to the celebration of the feast of Christmas Oh fantastic. Now Christmas time is usually a time that people associate um, as much with uh, family, spending time with family, coming together sure. um, and, and being together in, in that way. I'd be very curious to know a little bit about when you were growing up in your family, what um, uh, what Christmas celebration was like for you, how faith-filled it was. And someone who I work with has asked me, knowing that I was coming in and interviewing today, wanted to know whether or not there was a Wilson family um, after lunch backyard cricket game at some point on Christmas Day. No, there wasn't. <laughs> we never played. We never played cricket after lunch on Christmas Day. Okay, uh, but there were some other customs that were part of our Wilson family preparation for Christmas. One was that uh, we would go out to the bush a week before Christmas and cut down our own Christmas tree. Okay, which would be, you know, a gum tree of some kind, uh, and then bring that home and decorate that. Now you were in New South Wales, weren't you? That yes. was where you grew up. Countryside of New South Wales, north uh, north of Sydney. The other thing which would seem to be really strange was that in my earliest experiences of Christmas, the outstanding element of the celebration of Christmas was the fact that we ate, we ate chicken. Okay. We only ever had chicken, roasted chicken on Christmas Day and Easter Day. And so two days before Christmas, we would go out to the farm, to Mr. McGregor's farm, to pick up our dressed fowl to bring home to be, to be cooked. So my earliest memories of Christmas are waking in the morning for present giving mm. with a house filled with the smell of, of chickens roasting in the oven it was just absolutely wonderful so does that now every time you do smell that smell does it take you back to, to those moments sometimes it does the other uh, big thing for me for Christmas was that I was the eldest in the family mm. so when I was a teenager when I was 14 and 15 I had baby brothers who were born so it wow. went a long time in my in my adult life. I was able to uh, experience Christmas through their eyes. And yeah. I remember when they were about four or five, taking them to our church one, one time after Christmas and talking to them about the Christmas crib, which in our church is a very beautiful thing, mm. and, and explained to them all the different elements of it. And that, that was a tremendous moment for me. Yes. Um, how, what was the worship side of your um, family Christmases like? Oh, my, my uh, family uh, always went to Mass and were deeply involved in, uh, in the life of the church. And so they, they would have always gone to Mass on Christmas. Uh, when I was about eight, I, I forced them to go to Midnight Mass. They didn't have the habit of going to Midnight Mass. And you were eight. I was eight. I was sort of a little religious fanatic, but I, I wanted to go to Midnight Mass. So we went to Midnight Mass, and uh, uh, I was told, you know, that if you're going to Midnight Mass, it's a privilege. You mustn't go to sleep. You've got to participate in all sorts of stuff. That was very lovely. So that became the habit. We'd, we'd always go to Midnight Mass. We'd come home, have have drinks, and uh, and then go to bed, and then they'd get up early in the morning and, and exchange presents in, in, uh, in the morning time. So th that was a great time. I think as we got older, the really great part of that experience was that it was a time when we all were at home. 
uh, everybody made a big effort to come home for Christmas. So uh, when when I was a priest, that meant that I was never home on Christmas Day because I had other things to do and and. One of my appointments for 10 years was where we had a regional hospital. And so I'd stay in in the presbytery over Christmas Day just in case there was a sick call when okay. the others would all go home. But I, I'd go home on uh, on Boxing Day and we'd have a second round of uh, Christmas events on Boxing Day when I got, got there. But no, they were just wonderful. We had a great time uh, just being with one another and being with our parents uh, and enjoying enjoying all of that. I, th I think that uh, one of the great things about, about our Christmas was that it, it was also a time when my parents made sure that we had a very strong awareness of the fact that Christmas is a time we had to think of others mm. and people who were, who were um, having difficulty and so on. So my mother would often gather people together and bring them to our place for Christmas dinner, you know? Oh, wow. A woman who lived opposite us, whose husband died, and who didn't have any family that she came across so th things like that happened or, or people would be in and out of the house during the Christmas days uh, uh, just enjoying um, camaraderie and, and friendship and so on it's, it's very beautiful how do you feel that having been exposed to those experiences early in your life how did that do you think that shaped you in some way oh, I'm sure it did like one of the things that I've done since I came here is that um, every Christmas Day we have a meal here at lunchtime and I invite all the priests to come mm. so that those who have nowhere else to go can come here and we, we have a gathering of usually about 15 or 16 priests okay. and, and especially now that we have priests from overseas coming here that mm. it mean they don't have family to go to so they, they come here and, and we just uh, enjoy our, our meal together and then uh, in the spirit of Christmas our, our staff of the house are really wonderful too in that they make themselves available to come in on Christmas Day and cook and look after things and so on you know and that, that's, a, that's a great thing Yeah. In reference to what you were saying about overseas priests it was another point that I wanted to bring up um, probably not right now but now that you've brought it up it seems like a good time I was remembering um, uh, in reference to a conversation I was having with a girl at, of primary school age when I was out at a school the other day and she was saying to me I just don't know whether I believe in Jesus or not. And it made me remember that Father Charles Lucardi, who's now at Aberfall Park where I go to Mass, and, uh, but when he first arrived he was at Blackwood and I was there for one of his opening homilies and he was talking all about uh, Jesus as a historical figure mm. that he pops up in, in so many different texts, including the Quran, as, uh, as a prophet. So uh, I, I sort of explained, I said, well, look, it's all well and good to say that you don't necessarily understand yet for yourself who Jesus was as a figure in history, but there's no questioning that he actually existed and he actually was there. Well, some people tried. I mean, some people have tried throughout history to say he didn't exist, uh, but but everyone knows that uh, there's terrific uh, um, evidence historically that he did exist and that he was uh, very much the person that uh, we know him to be through the scriptures. Mm. I think the big question for many people is that they, they might accept that he existed, but but to accept that he's the son of God made man is, a, is another mm. leap. Uh, one of the things I'd say to people is that in order to get to know Jesus, it's really important to read the scriptures. Mm. If you just read the gospels and look at, look at the way he related to people, there's something extraordinary about this man. Uh, look at the way that he taught, look at the extraordinary parables he taught and so on. Um, yeah, there's something very, very special about him. And uh, when you open the, the scriptures and read the gospels, uh, you provide the opportunity for him to touch you.
that he comes into contact with your life too and it becomes more meaningful that way i still find it very hard to not read the scriptures and not be uh, moved by by Jesus and by his experiences and what he actually taught, and every time you I read, I still find new things. Always, there's always because it always speaks to you know. And, and if ever I'm at mass as well, and and the reading of the day happens, and the homily is then um, delivered afterwards, I always find that there's always something in that message at that time that speaks to me in my own experience, in my own life sure. at that time. It has that ability to be able to reach out, that universality. Well, that's the way it's meant to work because, you see, the Word of God is Jesus present in our midst. So if when the Word is read in our community at Mass, something else happens, he becomes present and powerful, and then that Word of God is able to touch you. Yeah, I see and that. And it reaches you in the middle of your life as it has, happens to be at that stage. We were talking a little bit about um, the Gospels and how they are different from each other. We have four Gospels, and they all look at essentially the life journey of Jesus, sometimes from different perspectives. Only one of the books, um, the Gospel of John, actually has a written intention of what it's actually trying to achieve. Can you explain a little bit about why they are different and the context in which um, these Gospels were written that makes them different? Well, there's obviously basic data that uh, was shared by the early Christian community about Jesus. The, the gathering together early on, there were living people who remembered him, had contact with him and so on. And they would have told the stories uh, and and shared their experiences and so on and they then became formative within the life of the early community but when it came to the issues about uh, uh, writing down the data and writing the gospels that all of those took place in different contexts so there are different authorships there are different intentions that were part of the gospels because they were speaking to different communities their aim in the gospels was not just to uh, create an historical pattern about Jesus' life, but also to say to people in a particular place, this is what this is what the story of Jesus means. So in Matthew, Mark and Luke, there are different emphases because they were dealing with different different communities mm. and different needs that people had at that time. One thing that's I think quite often overlooked is the fact that it was wasn't until I think seventy AD that the very first gospel was actually written so it was a long time There's after many arguments about with the the when the gospels are you know dated and all that okay. kind of stuff or the ones that in the in the new testament today were written very early on right so it's just a, it's just a generation or so after jesus uh, died and rose again that uh, the gospel started being put together What's the impression of Jesus as written in, we talked about this briefly before, I'd like to touch on this again, uh, Jesus present in the Quran as, a, uh, as, as the figure of a prophet that was there. Can you talk a little bit about um, the depiction of Jesus in the Quran? No, not really. I don't <laughs> okay. know very much about the Quran at all. Oh, okay. Except to say that uh, I know that um, when Islam was being put together, that there were different elements of, of uh, different faiths that that were part of their experience. And one was that the people who were involved in the foundation of Islam recognised not only was Jesus outstanding and a prophet, but not the Son of God, but outstanding the prophet, but also that Mary, his mother, was someone who had to be venerated as well. So that was even in the Quran. Sure thing. Wow, that's amazing. So isn't they've it? got they express a great honour for her because of the role that she had as, as the mother of Jesus. Uh, that probably would have come about as a result of the communities that Islam came out of, where there was a, a Christian tradition 
um, that that revolved around honouring Jesus and Mary, his mother, too. That's really interesting, isn't it? It's mm. fascinating stuff. I do want to talk a little bit about this diocesan spring gathering. This all happened as part of the Renewal Project, the Renewal Program that's happening in the Archdiocese. Can you tell us a little bit about what Renewal is first, Archbishop, and then a little bit about this event, what happened and um, your impressions of it? Well, the aim of the Renewal is very simple. We want uh, all the people who belong to the Catholic Church in, uh, in Adelaide to have a living and close relationship with Jesus. Uh, and to be converted to him and be the best disciple of him that they can be. We recognise that uh, this can't happen simply by treating everybody like Adams. The big, big responsibility we have is to have a renewal of our community because it's through the community that faith grows and develops and is challenged and, and, uh, and nourished. So this process of renewal um, has been going on for a long time. We've been at this... Uh, well, before I arrived here 15 years ago, there was a whole lot of work done, and then since I came, there's been many phases of looking at uh, at the renewal of the of the diocese. Um, this last intense uh, phase um, began with a a pattern of um, visitation of all the parishes and all our communities, of the vicar general Philip Marshall and others going around and speaking to people in parishes about their hopes and joys and their anxieties and so on. And then that was all put together and um, in a way celebrated in this spring gathering that we had where there were almost 500 people present. Yeah, I saw the photos. Was, it looked amazing. It was absolutely incredible. And, and it was very well organised in that it got people to reflect that day on, on the challenges we face now and what we need to do to move forward in order to be more faithful to our Lord. So there were lots of lots of uh, ideas and experiences and stories shared on that day, and some of them uh, are very challenging. They're big challenges to the church about about its life and so on. But we now live with the with the the work we have to do of of looking at uh, what we can do to give life to our faith while we preserve what we believe, and at the same time reach out to the people who happen to surround us in our community and in, in, in the church today. So what I'm, what I'm saying to our people now is, well, we've arrived at this point, it's been very good. We now have to look at uh, the next phase, and the next phase is that those who are involved in the renewal need to become enablers. In other words, they've got to uh, develop a system whereby they go to the parishes and other communities and help them to do what they need to do, mm. that, that they recognise they need to do in order to, to be renewed. So a big part of it is, you think, networking the parishes to a certain degree, kind of creating a, a sense of an Adelaide-wide community where we each help and enable each other? Uh, sort of, but no, I, I think the focus at the moment needs to be that each community needs to say, what do we need to do here in order to make our experience of faith and our relationship with Jesus more vibrant for us? Yeah. There may be some elements of it that are common, but I'd imagine that um, the challenges that people face would be a little different if they were living at uh, Brighton or Pinaroo. Mm. Lot, lot would be similar and common, but there'd be different nuances because of the circumstances they find themselves in, yeah. the size of their community, the way things are happening in their world at this particular time. 
Was there any similar things that came up in terms of uh, challenges that all people felt that they had generally that you didn't expect to be acted upon? Not to me. There might have been to some other people, but the things that came up, the things that I've been concerned about and thought thought about already. I, I think the really big thing at the at present for us in our church is the is the leadership of Pope Francis. Yes, and that was stamped all over this. Mm. That it's it's what he's saying and what the example that he gives that's challenging all of us to be really engaged as Catholics uh, in the world today. And in studying him and, and, and thinking about what he's saying and in, and in talking about him, I've come to realise that his, his perception is that where our relationship with God comes into life is when we recognise that we live in God's mercy, that God's mercy is, is there for all of us. And God's mercy not only um, provides us with forgiveness, but God's mercy gives us an energy to be able to reach out and, and, and uh, look to other people and their needs. Oh, that's so well said. So you could see on the, at the, spring, the spring gathering that, that Pope, Francis just kept, Pope Francis kept coming through all mm. the time. Just distinct references to him, but also... Uh, you know, in oblique kinds of ways because of the things that people are saying. You're listening to RHD 107.9 Life. Archbishop Philip Wilson is my special guest here today. Um, that's almost time for us, Archbishop, but before we do go, uh, I would really love it if you had a, a Christmas message for our listeners. Certainly, James. Uh, this Christmas, uh, I've been thinking a lot about the way that so many of the Christian communities, Catholic and others, are being torn apart in the world at present, and think of especially the Middle East where um, loads and loads of our brothers and sisters who belong to the faith are being persecuted because they are, and in some cases are being martyred simply because they're Christians. They, they line them up and kill them uh, and, and create uh, terrible uh, pain and suffering in their lives in so many ways. So uh, my, my big Christmas message this year would be to say to, our, to people who belong to our church here, let's remember those people in our prayers and if there's any opportunity we have to be able to support them, that uh, we should take that up. Fantastic. Well, as always, Archbishop, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your support um, with RHD Radio over the course of the year. Thank you. Well, I'm a great fan of RHD Radio, and I have all sorts of ideas and, and, and uh, thoughts about how RHD Radio could become even more significant in our lives, how we can maximise the opportunity that RHD Radio provides us with to be involved in this process of renewal as we go through Renewal Now parishes and other organisations, we certainly have to look at the way in which we use modern means of communication to gather people to challenge them and to support them. Well, I'm always thankful for being able to, to, to be a voice that we can have that can actually talk not only to the Catholic people in our community, but also just the, you know, just the general public of people out there just to let them know what we're on about and, yeah, and the kind right. of great work that we're doing and, and all right. that kind of stuff. So thanks again and uh, we'll see you again soon. Soon. Yes, thanks, James. You can hear RHD every Wednesday night from 9, every Saturday night from 10 here on 107.9 Life. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, jump onto iTunes or SoundCloud and you can subscribe. Just look for RHD Radio. We will see you again in a few days. See ya.